0: Welcome to Obesity, a Disease, the official Obesity Medicine Association podcast exploring the many facets of the disease of obesity. Obesity, a Disease podcast is brought to you by the Obesity Medicine Association, the clinical leader in obesity medicine.
1: Several months ago, I admitted a 63-year-old female with class 3 obesity to a nursing home after an episode of hepatic encephalopathy. She had end-stage liver disease due to NASH. She did not have any infectious or inflammatory cause of her liver disease and denied any past alcohol use, but she was a self-proclaimed cocaholic. She was being evaluated for liver transplant, and as I was talking to her, I noticed a bottle of lemon-lime soda, some apple juice on her tray, as well as some cookies by her bedside. She said she still frequently drinks soda and fruit juice, and I asked her if anyone had ever advised her to eliminate or at least minimize sugar in her diet. No one did. Not her family physician, not her gastroenterologist, not her hepatologist, nor did even her liver transplant team advise her to reduce or eliminate sugar from her diet. Hi, is Dr. Nick Pennings, Chair of Family Medicine at the Campbell University School of Osteopathic Medicine and Executive Director of Clinical Education at the Obesity Medicine Association. And I am joined on the podcast today with Robert Lustig, MD. Dr. Lustig is a professor of pediatrics in the Division of Endocrinology at UCSF, University of California, San Francisco. In addition to his rich contribution to the medical literature, he is an author of several best-selling books and a passionate advocate for promoting health, metabolic health, and nutrition, especially with respect to health risks of sugar. He was keynote speaker at May's 2022 Fall Obesity Summit. His presentation was titled, The Big Picture, NAFLD, Non-Alcoholic Fatty Liver Disease, and the Sentinel Disease of Metabolic Syndrome. Welcome, Rob.
2: Thanks for having me, Nick. It's my pleasure.
1: Your books, uh, Fat Chance and Metabolical, your YouTube recordings and lectures have really educated me on the health consequences of sugar and other processed food. And and I attribute, you know, the education that you provided with me, my with my ability to counsel this patient on why she needs to stop sugar consumption, uh, to the work that you have done. So I want to thank you for that. Um, but also I wanted. If asking you to share your insights on how sugar contributed to her condition and why it's so important for her to stop her sugar intake.
2: <clears throat> if it was just your patient, it'd <clears throat> be one thing, but it's everybody. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, you know, at UCSF, we've already done two liver transplants on 400 pound soda drinkers. And worse yet, one of those ended up coming back a year later, having basically cirrhosed the second liver. Because they never got off the uh, sugared beverages. So the way to understand this problem is to understand the pathogenesis of this new, relatively new phenomenon, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. To make a very long story short, this is a disease that 45 years ago was unheard of. It, you know, didn't exist. If you saw fatty liver disease under the microscope, you know that was an alcoholic. Period. And now, you know, 25% of children get fatty liver disease. Yeah, but they don't drink alcohol. So there must be some substrate in the environment that does the same things as alcohol. And the fact of the matter is, it's been staring us, you know, in our face for the past, oh, I would say 35 years, because ultimately sugar, particularly. The molecule fructose, the sweet molecule in sugar, which is not glucose, despite what the food industry might tell you. Sugar is a sugar. That is absolutely not true. Fructose and ethanol are metabolized virtually identically in the liver. They do the same things. They go through the same pathways. They cause the same problems. So it shouldn't be surprising that children get the diseases of alcohol without alcohol. Well, unfortunately, your 63-year-old patient, you know, did not learn that lesson, and I unfortunately learned it through, you know, the failures of two of my own patients. Yeah, and
1: and so, and I I found that very frustrating that, you know, even the transplant team wasn't discussing that with her. Do you find that commonplace in... in uh, the world in on fatty liver disease?
2: I find it very common, except at UCSF, where I've basically beaten it into them. Yes.
1: <laughs> yes. Yes. And so when it comes to fructose, I mean is there a dose effect there? I mean, is a little bit of fructose okay, but once you hit a certain threshold,
2: yeah. you run right. problems. Absolutely. So this is a dose effect for sure. It's a dose chronicity effect, to be, you know, clear. Um, when you consume a little bit of fructose that fructose will actually first be metabolized by the intestinal epithelial cells which have the capacity to undergo de novo lipogenesis so they can actually turn fructose into fat and so it will be part of what increases postprandial triglyceride levels okay now the way you can tell the difference is you can actually look for the apo B 48 in, the, um, in that fraction, you know, by doing immunoaffinity uh, column uh, chromatography. So you can determine what's triglyceride coming from the liver versus what's triglyceride coming from the intestine. Okay. Having said that, the liver will metabolize about 10% of a fructose load, but that means the rest of it is gonna end up at the liver. And the liver has a fixed capacity to be able to metabolize that fructose. Now the GLUT5 transporter uh, is the specific fructose transporter. It's in the liver and it's going to transport 85% of that portal fructose dose into liver cells. And then the liver has to metabolize it. Well, the liver can't metabolize that 20 ounce Coca-Cola. That's too much. It overwhelms the liver's capacity. And because of that, then the liver has no choice but to turn the rest into fat. And that process, again, is called de novo lipogenesis. And that fat will then precipitate in the liver. And now you've got a lipid droplet. And now you've got fatty liver disease. And you also have insulin resistance because that fat is actually preventing the liver from doing its function.
1: And so that dose of fructose that the liver gets with that 20 ounce soda, um, is it is it the total volume? Is it the rate at which it's exposed to that fructose? Like if you ate the same mm-hmm. amount in apples or something, right. would it have the same
2: effect? Well, if you ate it in apples, you're eating it with the inherent fiber. So the fructose is in within the fiber matrix. First of all, in order to Consume the same amount of fructose in apples as you would get in a 20 ounce Coca Cola, you would have to consume about 15 apples. I dare you to do that. That's number one. Okay. You'll throw up first. That's not going to (laughs) happen. The second thing is that the fiber in the apples, both the soluble and insoluble fiber, form a gel matrix on the inside of your duodenum, you can actually see it on electron microscopy, a whitish gel, and it serves as a secondary barrier that prevents that early fructose absorption from reaching the liver in the first place. So it's protecting your liver. Therefore, the fructosemic excursion is lower, the glycemic excursion is lower, therefore the insulin response is lower, which is good from a chronic disease standpoint. Well, if you're not absorbing it early, where's it going? Well, it's going further down the intestine, where the microbiome is, to the jejunum, where the microbiome will actually chew up that fructose load for its own purposes, so you are feeding the gut. Protect the liver, feed the gut. Anything, any food that does both is healthy. Therefore, fruit, even though it contains fructose, is healthy because it protects the liver and it feeds the gut. Soft drinks, on the other hand, are the exact opposite.
1: Right. They're rapidly absorbed. So you're getting a, a massive dose in a short period of time, You know, both of which are going to have unhealthy consequences. Exactly. And so is it sugar that's contributing to the NAFOL that we're seeing uh, that it's becoming so common?
2: Well, there are many um, lipogenic substrates. Fructose, of course, is the big kahuna. It's the 2,000 pound gorilla in the room. But there are others. I mean, alcohol, of course, you know, but again, kids don't drink alcohol. Trans fats did this too. But trans fats are coming out of our diet because we recognize just how dangerous they are for appropriate reasons. And then also there's a a fourth. lipogenic substrate that can cause fatty liver. And it is branched chain amino acids, branched chain amino acids. So leucine, isoleucine, valine. Now they're all essential amino acids. They all have to be consumed. Your body can't make them. They are 20% of muscle by weight. So you need them. It's not like you can do without them, but if you're a bodybuilder, you know, pumping iron and you're creating muscle, you have to, you know, uh, bring them on. I mean, you have to uh, consume more of them. And that's why people take scoops of protein powder and put it in their, you know, uh, uh, shakes, you know, that they make. But what if you're not a bodybuilder? What if you're a mere mortal like me, you know, you and you over consume branched chain amino acids, what's going to happen is there's no place to put them because you're not building muscle. Those branched chain amino acids will go to the liver. The liver will deamidate them, take the amino group off. Now you've got branched chain uh, organic acids and those branched chain organic acids will enter the tricarboxylic acid cycle in the mitochondria, overwhelm those mitochondria the same way fructose does the same way trans fats do. And it will throw off the excess as citrate, which will then, lead to de novo lipogenesis also. So this is the work of Christopher Newgard at Duke. So the bottom line is there are many lipogenic substrates that are in our diet, but the one that we give to children and call it love, that's sugar. Right, right.
1: Um, And and you know, we're seeing this rise and now becoming, you know, the, the most common cause or will soon be the most common cause of liver transplant. As right.
2: Well, it say. is, it already is the most uh, common cause. Already of liver is. Um,
1: and also hepatocellular, that also results in hepatocellular carcinoma, is well, another concern. Um, and, and so one of the challenges I think is recognizing it. Um, if you see an a, elevated ALT, you know, that can be a, an important clue Right. but also not a particularly sensitive indicator of NAPFL, right?
2: Well, uh, so let me, let me spend just a minute on ALT here. Um, so it's actually sensitive, not specific. Um, but in order to, for it to be sensitive, you have to use the right normal range. And the normal range that's listed on the lab slip is not correct. The normal range says that the upper limit of ALT in the general population of America is 40. Now, that may be two standard deviations above the mean, but that does not make it normal. In fact, when I went to medical school in 1976, the upper limit for ALT was 25. Today, it's 40. How come? Well, because everyone has fatty liver disease. The entire curve has shifted to the right You know, as we've watched over the past 45 years, because everyone has fatty liver disease now, and the lab doesn't know, (laughs) you know, it's a, a silent phenomenon until you have cirrhosis. So they don't know. So the fact of the matter is that we should be using an upper limit of normal of 25 for evaluation of ALT on our lab slips. And if you do that, then it becomes sensitive. Now, it's not specific. There are other things that will raise your ALT also, but it is actually sensitive.
1: And so you get that number over 25, what, what's next? What do you do next to the huh.
2: <laughs> So the very first thing that I would do is I would say, all right, if it's an ALT above 25, is it greater than four times normal? That is, is it greater than a hundred? If it's greater than a hundred, you better start looking for cellular damage. So you ought to draw gamma GT, And you might want to do a liver ultrasound, and you might even want to send that patient ultimately for a liver biopsy. If you don't have an ALT that's off the charts, then the first thing I would do is say, all right, let's fix your diet and see if it goes down. Because fatty liver disease in stage one, that is hepatic steatosis without inflammation, is eminently reversible. So before we go off half-cocked and start sticking needles in people's livers and you know uh, doing fancy fiber scans and other MRS tests that you don't necessarily need, let's see if we can actually bring it back down toward normal. Let's get the sugar and the alcohol out of the patient's diet. Bring them back in a month. Repeat the ALT. And if it's lower, say, keep doing it. Don't worry about it. If, on the other hand, it's not lower, if it's gone up, then I do think you do need to do the full workup.
1: What about other things like metabolic syndrome bindings like elevated triglycerides, low HDL? Absolutely.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So the, the point is that um, fatty liver disease is the hepatic manifestation of metabolic syndrome. When they defined metabolic syndrome back in the nineties. And, you know, there were six different organizations, you know, they didn't really understand what the liver's contribution was. And so, you know, they picked out, you know, um, uh, insulin resistance, they picked out uh, high triglyceride. they picked out uh, hypertension, they picked out low HDL, they picked out obesity as being part and parcel of metabolic syndrome. But nobody really looked at the liver at that point. Fact of the matter is that the liver is the sentinel disease for metabolic syndrome. And the really important thing is that you don't have to put a whole lot of fat in your liver to get metabolic syndrome. About a pound will do. Okay, your liver is about three pounds. If you end up with one pound of fat in your liver or even half a pound, you're going to have significant insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome, and that may not show up on the scale. So there are normal weight people who have metabolic syndrome because of their fatty liver who don't, uh, you know, show up with obesity. So, you know, this is something you need to be looking for for in all your patients, not just the patients with obesity. And the way to determine what's going on is with a, uh, a, a standard chem panel. And you can look for the ALT level, but you know, interpreting it properly. You can look at the triglyceride level, which should be elevated in those patients. And the, the test that I think is actually the most important is not included in the standard chem panel, and that is uh, fasting insulin.
1: I was going to ask you about fasting insulin, uh, if that was another marker. Tell me how do you how do you use fasting insulin to assess for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease?
2: Well, so fasting insulin will basically tell you about mitochondrial dysfunction. It won't specifically tell you about fatty liver disease, but it will tell you whether or not you are metabolically unhealthy. If you have a fasting insulin less than 10 microunits per mill, you're doing great. If it's between 10 and 15, you know, that's the gray zone. And if it's above 15, you have metabolic syndrome until proven otherwise. Uh, And then you should look at, and then you should go look at the liver. Mm -hmm.
1: Okay. Well, I think that's very helpful. Um, So how should we be treating non-alcoholic fatty liver disease? There aren't any medications approved for treating it. Should we be focused on weight loss or nutrient composition or
2: both? Well, so if you read the, uh, standard, you know, ACE guidances and you know the American Cancer Society guidances and everything else that's been written on treatment of fatty liver disease, they all say weight loss. Well, the problem is that there are a lot of people with fatty liver disease who are in, do not have obesity. So, like, how are they supposed to do it? The fact of the matter is, weight loss is—I'm um, not going to say it's bad; it's good, but it is by no means. Actually, a specific uh, therapeutic uh, maneuver for uh, fatty liver disease. The most important thing is to fix the diet. And if you fix the diet almost assuredly, if they haven't already started necroinflammation, you know going into stage two fatty liver disease, you can reverse the entire thing without changes in calories and without changes in weight. This was demonstrated by both us at UCSF in our uh, uh, fructose restriction study and also by Dr. Miriam Voss and Dr. Jeff Schwimmer at UC San Diego and Emory University, uh, which they published in JAMA as well. So the fact is that if you just get the sugar out of kids' and adults' diets, their fatty liver disease will Uh, uh, resolve, provided there's no, um, you know, scarring. um, And it will do it without changes in calories or weight. So this notion that you have to lose weight is actually a red herring. That's not the issue. The issue is fix the diet. And if you fix the diet, then there's a good chance you'll lose weight anyway.
1: Right. So fixing the diet, as you mentioned, getting the fructose out of the diet, particularly uh, sugar-based, uh, not consuming excess amounts of branch chain fatty uh, amino acids, acids. right. Um, and then uh, minimizing alcohol intake too. Absol- which absolutely.
2: In yeah. Anything that basically is going to poison the mitochondria mm-hmm. cadmium is another problem. You know, everybody eats dark chocolate. You know what? There's a lot of cadmium in dark chocolate <laughs> and cadmium is a, you know, causes oxidative stress, causes reactive oxygen species formation, which can actually, of course, make fatty liver disease worse. Mm. Now, if you have to go the medication route, you know, because diet, you know, th- dietary intervention didn't help. The only medications that have thus far been shown to be even minimally effective are vitamin E and uh, thiazolidine diones. Metformin helps a little bit, but not very much. It's got a salutary effect on fatty liver disease. Um, and probably the reason that uh, the vitamin e and the thiazolidinediones work is because you're basically giving the body another place to put the fat. And you know that's better than having a fatty liver but it's not necessarily the best answer uh, in in general. There are lots of companies that are working on lxr agonists and you know various other uh, modalities uh, they are not ready for prime time.
1: And what about GLP1 receptor agonists? Does we, well, provide a benefit.
2: GLP1 receptor agonists, because they reduce uh, food intake, will have a secondary downstream benefit in terms of improvement of fatty liver disease, but only because of the change in food intake, not because the GLP1 analogs have a direct effect on liver fat.
1: All right. Well, thank you, Rob. Uh, you can find Dr. Lustig's. Um, OMA conference lecture, the big picture, Naffold and the Sentinel Disease and Metabolic Syndrome in the OMA Academy. Uh, Where else can our listeners learn more about your work?
2: Oh, boy, where am I not? (laughs) So uh, I have a website, Robertlustig.com. I used to say that I was on Twitter. You know, I'm not on Twitter anymore because (laughs) Twitter has basically turned into a uh, food fight, (laughs) to say the least. And, um, you know, I am not going to give Elon my eight bucks. I refuse. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I'm also okay. on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and, you know, and and the books are out there. I mean, and, and God knows I, there, are, there are enough papers. You know, if you just do a Medline search on my name, you'll find lots of stuff. And YouTube
1: lectures that you. Indeed which are very enjoyable. Well, Sugar
2: the Bitter Truth is 23 million views right now. If you haven't yeah. seen it, why not? <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for being with us today.
2: All right. Thank you so much for having me, Nick. My pleasure.
1: If you like this podcast, please share it with a friend and help the OMA as we strive to advance clinician understanding of the disease of obesity. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Obesity, a Disease. For more information about obesity medicine podcasts and other valuable resources from the clinical leaders in obesity medicine, please visit www.obesitymedicine.org podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode and want to listen regularly, head over to iTunes where you can subscribe, rate, and leave us a much appreciated review. The views expressed in this episode are those of the host and guest and do not necessarily represent the opinions, beliefs, or policies of the Obesity Medicine Association or its members. Please join us again for our next episode of Obesity, a Disease.